What if we can positively impact society by reshaping the mindsets of young men? And while we're at it, let me ask you, what does it mean to be a man? My name is Dennis Meralda, a father, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, and a principal with over two decades of experience shaping the minds and characters of young men across the United States. These questions resonate if you're a young man looking to improve your life or a parent looking for tools to help your son become the best version of himself. The Building Men Podcast was created for you. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the Building Men Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dennis Moralda, joined today by my man, Kevin Rumpel. Kevin is a para-Olympian, an author, a keynote speaker, badass dude. We were just introduced today. We just got to know each other a little bit today, but we've connected uh, via the socials a while back through Tanya McCready. Uh, who was back on the Building Men podcast in August or July, something like that. She's the dog sled racer. Great individual. If you got to go back and check that that interview out. Well, Tanya connected us and Kevin and I are, are here today. So Kevin, welcome to the podcast, dude. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, buddy. Stoked to be here, Dennis. Awesome, dude. So your story is really, really interesting. I was able to go back through and and learn a little bit about you and your journey. Very, very inspirational. And some of the people that I've had the most interesting conversations with, Kevin, are the guys that have gone through the shit, the guys that have gone through those things where you look up and you say, why me? Why am I going through this right now? You know, what what, what are these things happening to me for? And finding it somewhere in you to pull yourself out of whatever muck you find yourself in. So you have a, an interesting story. And so what I'd like to do is to see if you can if you can build us up to the time that you had the the accident when you were around 23 years old whenever that was it was around that time frame if i if i'm if i remember correctly but let us know a little bit about who you were as a as a middle school student a high school student a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are either you know young men themselves or the parents of young men so who were you as a young man growing up before you got into that horrific accident yeah i love actually that you're starting there because i mean obviously for your audience is perfect context though it's not something i have an opportunity or ever really chat about too much so when I was younger, uh, in elementary school, as an example, like I, first of all, I grew up in a, I would consider a very average household. Like we weren't definitely, we're not, we're not wealthy, but we were not poor. We were very middle-class and my parents were great parents. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I don't have the greatest memories. I was not in my eyes, a popular kid. I had like one or two friends only got picked on a lot just through my name and uh, my mom sold Avon. So go, going the, she worked in the community, which is where all the kids are from. And so like I got picked on because my mom sold Avon. And uh, when I got out of high school, or sorry, when I got out of elementary school, I was actually so excited because I remember, vividly remember walking off the playground after my last you know test of grade eight. <clears throat> and I got to the edge of the playground uh, right by the sidewalk and I turned around and I don't remember if I said it out louder in my mind, but I said to myself that I'm never going to be a loser again. Mm. And when I entered high school, I made a decision that I'm I'm going to work hard to like make new friends and become, you know, the person that I want to be. And I'm really grateful that I had a fantastic high school experience in my eyes compared to what my elementary school experience was like. You know, you meet new friends from different communities. Uh, that was when I was getting into my stride of just, you know, Growing up as a teenager, discovering what you like, got into BMX, motocross, and that also added to finding some friends and some pop creating some popularity just through the sports I was in. 
But um, the short version is that I did not have a great elementary school life. In fact, I hated it. And then when I got into high school, uh, it got better, which is something I'm really thankful for. To learn more about our programs, including one-on-one -on -one mentorship coaching, the foundation, our Building Men online group community for young men, or to bring a Building Men experience to your school, check out our website, buildingmen.io, or click the links in the bio. Now, back to the show. So if I'm a, a middle school kid right now, and that's the identity, that's a label that I put on myself that I am a loser, right? Like I'm saying that to myself, it's, it's that self-defeating talk that that little devil on my shoulder says to me on a regular basis. What advice would you give to that kid who that's the narrative that he's telling himself? Yeah, learning what I now know today as a more mature adult, when, for example, when you're being picked on as a kid, uh, that says more about the person picking on you than it does about you. It means that they have their own insecurity that they think by they need to bring somebody else down to make themselves feel better. So when you're now you're I, I'm like as you get older you begin to realize this that it's like they're dealing with their own stuff yep. and they think this is the way to handle it. But you don't want to live in an environment where you got to tear somebody else down to make you feel better about yourself. So if you can recognize that's their issue and their way of dealing with it, which is an unhealthy way of dealing with it, and you let it go and say to yourself, I'm not going to attach myself to someone else's opinion. Here's a quote that I that I help um, learn through my recovery is that someone else's opinion of you does not have to become your reality. Amen. So learning to listen to your own thoughts, to shape your own belief about who you are is what's going to help you navigate those often terrible environments where you may not be able to escape it, but you're, you're in control of your own thoughts and do not allow someone else's thoughts about you become your reality. I love that, Kevin. And when you think too, you mentioned going from the middle school you who turned around and said, I'm never going to be a loser again. And then you go to high school and obviously, you know, everything changes. You're going through puberty. There's a lot of different things going on, going from middle school to high school, but then having that idea like, okay, you know, I'm playing sports, I'm hanging with a popular crowd. But I think what happens too with kids is they get so enamored with the social status when they're in high school, like the, the popularity thing becomes, uh, you know, an overwhelming, uh, like a reach for them. Like I need to do whatever to be a part of the popular crowd. Did you ever go through that where you were so ready to shed the old identity that you had about being a loser that you were, you were almost, you know, going along with things that you shouldn't have been going along with, with the crowd because you wanted to be a part of this popular group. I can definitely relate to that. Um, here's what worked for me. So, but of course I'm 41 today. So I mean, in the nineties, your birthday, dude, Today's your birthday? No, no, sorry, not today. Oh, I, was, not today. I was like, oh, all right. I was going to sing <laughs> yeah. happy birthday. I was going to be the oh, first happy <laughs> birthday on the podcast. Uh, yeah, at this point, I'm at 41 years old in my life. And, you know, so when I was in high school, I, got grade, I graduated high school in 1999. So in the 90s, there was no cell phones, no internet, no right. social media. So I would say it's weird because in some ways you think that there was not the same pressure, yet there absolutely was still the same kind of pressure. It just looked different. And um, what I remember 
like I got I got introduced to stick and ball sports when I was a kid, hockey, soccer, baseball, football, etc. And I even tried out for the football team in grade nine because I thought that was what cool kids did. And (laughs) so I remember being at tryout, literally like one of the first tackles ever. And as I hit the ground and I scraped my knuckles, I'm like, this is stupid. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, it's just not for me. But why am I going to force myself to play football just to be cool? So uh, I didn't make the team, which was like awesome. <laughs> I was like, but I, like I said, was start alluding to is I got into motocross. I was already like, I got into action sports around the age of 10 to 12 years old. I fell in love and the X games became popular in the late nineties and 99 is when free song motocross was introduced. And I decided like when I put on a helmet to ride skateboard, snowboard, BMX, or motocross, that's four. Um, for me, I was in my own zone. That was, and that to this day is my happy place. So when I got into high school, as an example, like I didn't care about trying to fit in with the crowd because I, I found myself by myself with a board or a bike or a motor. And what I also found so great about those sports is that when you, as an example, go to a skate park um, or the motocross track, I mean, there's, of course, there's always clicks and stuff here and there, but in my experience and over the years, like when you show up for the most part, everybody's cool until you prove yourself otherwise. But in stick and ball sports, my experience has always most often been that you, when you show up, you got to prove that you're cool before you're accepted. So when I was like, in terms of like trying to fit in when I was in high school, I didn't think about that because I found my happiness just pursuing and being myself. And then as a result, a byproduct of me just doing my own thing and enjoying that, I started having people like ask me questions like, Oh, Kev, like, you know, you're doing this different or like I was learning a tail whip back then. That was something that was still like a new trick. So when I was at school doing a tail up in the parking lot, I'd have friends come up and ask me like, Hey, do us, do that trick. Like right. show us a trick. And then like, <clears throat> I found friends and popularity by just being me and then attracting people to me rather than like chasing people to try and fit in. I love that. And it's interesting. There's something called the alter ego effect. And when you talked about the, Todd Herman. the right, the actual physical process of putting on the helmet you with those sports, was it almost like you putting on the Iron Man suit? Was it what did you become like, okay, now I'm this, you know, I'm going to do these extreme things right now? 100%. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I actually don't own a motorcycle at this current moment anymore. I sold my bikes, but I would, I mean, all my mo- bikes are in my blood. Uh, but like to this day, if I put on a motocross helmet, like it is that it's like, I'm a different, I'm a different version of me and the entire world shuts off. And the only thing that I can think about, care about, and and I'm focused on in that moment is, is riding. So you were able to find a level of confidence through that, that perhaps didn't exist, especially when you were in middle school. So again, if I'm a, if I'm a young man listening to this right now, and I'm, I could be struggling with confidence in some capacity in my life. Is there a strategy that you have used to help people find that confidence in themselves? So what I would, great question. Here's what I, again, with, with age and and maturity and thinking back to where I was at that age or for anyone that's listening and struggling with that area, listen to what your inner voice is telling you that you really want to do. Stop trying to fit in because 
even if you do find that you fit in, you're, you're playing a fake game. Like you're not being yourself. And at some point you lose enthusiasm, you lose steam, you run out of runway or people catch you pretending. And then that's going to be not only embarrassment or frustration, but it's also wasted time. When you're younger, of course, your time horizon is very limited. You don't have enough perspective because you haven't lived long enough. So everything such as like even a week or a month, a year feels like forever. But really, it's a blip in your life. And so if you start think if you were to extend your time horizon, for example, that would be my advice. If you were to extend your time horizon in terms of finding yourself and finding true friends and, you know, developing who you really want to be, it removes the pressure from feeling like you need to fit in today. L listen to your inner voice of what you truly want. If you want to go paint, go paint. But like, especially in today's world through social media, there are a lot of badass artists that can share their artwork online and have a huge following. It's like you can, the, the, the opportunity to tap into your passion and what your skill set is at is like exponential compared to what it used to be. And so I would just say, you know, extend your time horizon, listen to what that inner voice is truly telling you and stop trying to fit in, but go after what you really want. And you're going to attract the people to you that you actually want to spend time with. And then you're actually choosing who your friends are. You're not trying to, you know, pull yourself into a, a peer group that may not even be the people you actually want to spend time with in the first place. I love that too. And I'm going to, I'm going to put a, quick pause or, or uh, put a, um, a bookmark in the, the space about BMX is I definitely want to get back into that. You mentioned, you know, what it was like growing up for you, Kevin, and mom was an Avon lady and selling the, the makeup. Did the, it was Avon the pink car or was that Mary Kay? Mary my, mom Kay. Sold, yeah. Mary, my, my mom sold Mary Kay for a really, really short period of time. I hadn't thought about that for three decades until you just mentioned the Avon thing. So I'm going to, I'm having a quick connection. My relationship to my father was really, really challenging. It's one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing today was because of that uh, lack of a, like a really positive male influence or role model in my life. And there's a, there was a lot of things that went on between you and your father growing up, I'm sure. And there was, you know, a tragic event that happened. Can you talk to us a little bit about your father and then lead us up into the event that happened with your father? Absolutely. When I was growing up, like I mentioned, stick and ball sports, my dad was a hockey fan, diehard Leafs fan through and through. And when we, when I was playing hockey, we got along, like spent more time together. But when I wanted to pursue action sports and dirt bikes, my dad was very resistant and reluctant to get me a bike. It took two years, finally did, but we never really hung out once I got a bike. So I continued to ride. Uh, even when I raced, I think my memory rec recalls about, I went to, I think seven races. Uh, mom drove me to every race, except for one dad took me to, and that was not a member well, a memory that I enjoy. It was not a great day. Right, <laughs> it still was right. not a great day. Yeah. And, uh, then late in my teens, uh, when I was 19 years old, uh, I, so for context, my dad was a hunter and fisher and hockey guy. And when we were kids, we went fishing for family vacations up to Bay of Quinty in Ontario. And I did hunt with my dad as a kid. But again, when I got into bikes, I stopped hunting fishing. And in my late teens, around 19 years old, uh, I decided to pursue that again. 
So me and my dad, we were out uh, deer hunting, building a tree stand when one of the branches my dad was standing on broke and he fell two stories to the ground, uh, broke his back in the process and became a paraplegic just eight months from retirement. So as a 19 year old kid, I literally saw my dad fall, break his back and become paralyzed right in front of my own eyes. I, you know, grabbed a cell phone out of my dad's pocket. I run or no, we didn't even have the cell phone was in our truck. So I took the keys out of dad's pocket. This is like December cold in, you know, winter laid my jacket over top of him to keep him warm, grabbed the keys, ran to the truck to grab the cell phone to call 911. And, uh, you know, life from that point forward was never the same. Uh, but that was, uh, another big turning point. My dad and I, we had a little bit of friction, uh, uh, before my dad's accident, but it wasn't anything I would consider too significant. But after my dad was paralyzed, <clears throat> he became incredibly, uh, angry about a situation, which I understand. Um, but he became cynical, pessimistic and his attitude navigating life after his injury was, uh, very difficult to live with and and the friction in our household uh skyrocketed i would say absolutely and one thing that i talk to young men about now right and we when i, I ask them to build a man all right what do you think it means to be a man and we talk a little bit about it and a lot of the kids initially when i first meet with them they're like well you got to be the best athlete bigger faster stronger you got to look the part uh you got to be able to like dominate basically then there was about sexual conquest so you know being with the most girls or the hottest girls and then making the most money and a lot of it was like a rap star lifestyle kind of thing. And they put a lot of value in that, in those false ideals. And so what I would say to them is, okay, if that's what you're basing your masculinity on, what happens if you were to, God forbid, become paralyzed and you can no longer use your lower half, which meant, you know, you can't play sports like you once did, lift weights, you know, like interact sexually with another person, you know, those kinds of things. Are you no longer a man? Right. And so what if we based our masculine around other things? And we'll get into that later on in the podcast. But I know for like with my own father, if if that happened to him, he would have went down the same path. He would have went down the path of getting I mean, already was extremely bitter, but not being able to perform things the way that he did, because masculinity wasn't something that came from his heart or his head. It was all extrinsic. It was all like flashy things or how well he, you know, or what he looked like and, and things like that. So for you, you know, like how did that seeing your father go through that did it did it adjust or change what you thought it meant to be a man or what kind of a man you wanted to be when i was a teenager and dad got injured i what was the man was not even crossing my mind i mean i was admittedly a, a victim myself in the situation being pissed off that you know i thought why does my dad have to be the guy that gets hurt why do i got to be the kid with a screwed up household now you know, like, why do I have to suffer through this? Because he made a mistake of the tree, like whatever we can get, you know, whether it's his fault or not. <clears throat> so as a kid, I mean, again, back so many years ago, I, I don't even recall a one. I can't recall one conversation as a teenager about what is a man, not when I was growing up. So that wasn't even really on my mind. However, like you described, I definitely in terms of what my interpretation, what I thought was a man, I definitely lived all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I definitely chased um, accolades, accomplishments. I chased women for two decades, uh, thinking that you you become a man by, like you say, the hottest girl or how yeah. many women you sleep with. Um, and then when I, we haven't gotten to the, 
my Paralympic experience, but like through the Olympics and, uh, and even entrepreneurship and I'm a keynote speaker. It's like, I can see in hindsight today. Uh, and when I know we're going to start talking, we're going to get to the point too, about what my healing journey was like a year and a half ago where that really, like I hit that crux, but I, I spent so many years chasing after what I thought was a man to finally hit a, a wall at 40 and realize that I had been barking up the wrong tree the whole entire time. Yep. And there's an old Chinese proverb, something along the lines of the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. So wherever you are in your journey, once you, you know, come to that, uh, you know, realization or have that level of consciousness, today's the day to start. All right. So back to that moment. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with your father. He's bitter. You're saying, you know, why me? Why do I need to go through all this? You know, my family's all messed up right now. You're still doing the motocross and then you yourself have a horrific injury through that. So walk us through that situation, Kev. Yeah. So after my dad was paralyzed, I, I continued to ride and he would say, don't, you should stop riding because you don't want to end up like me. And I was not scared of being injured. I mean, I was, I felt invincible. That's for sure. As many kids do. Mm -hmm. So I continued to, uh, pursue riding. I got into freestyle instead of, uh, racing. And at the age of 23, started a business to put on my own jump shows on July 1st, Canada day of 06. I felt like I put on my first show, felt like I'd achieved all my childhood dreams, um, paid for riding my dirt bike, jumped in front of a crowd, signed autographs for little kids in a magazine with my sponsor felt like I'd given my all and it was the best I could be. And that I could like literally die happy. Then, uh, two weeks later, my second show, uh, I almost did. I was, uh, at another event and called rock the wake showed up with the wrong attitude. I mean, in hindsight, I can talk, we can talk all about ego, how that shows up in your teens and your twenties about ruling your life. But my ego that day, I had no idea, uh, what was happening, but it, it was forcing me to go to something that I didn't want to go to because I had thought that I had something to prove. So I showed up there with the wrong attitude. I wasn't mentally focused. I felt like I had to show up the other riders. And when it came practice time, I got, as soon as like practice started, I just got like the nerves just skyrocketed. And I knew in my gut, I didn't want to ride. I didn't want to jump, but I was too scared to speak up and say anything because I didn't want to look like a wuss. Cause you're supposed to be tough again. What's the man? Yep. Well, you're going to be tough. You're going to hold it on. You're not going to say anything. And so I fired up my bike and uh first jump of the day in practice, not even trying a trick. I just was trying to clear the gap. Uh, I took off body position. Wasn't right. Rear end came up too high and midair. I had to make a split second decision to stay on or jump off. I decided to jump off the bike to try and land on my feet instead of my head. And uh, the crash broke my back my pelvis, my ribs, and I was instantly paralyzed. And one as the moment that that happens, you're like, Oh, shit, me too. My dad's been telling me this the whole <laughs> entire time. What was that? What was going through your head in that in that exact moment? If you could recall? Yeah, I remember the whole day. I I, I remember the entire crash completely. Uh, yeah, when I was laying on the ground, I, I was on my side, kind of like the, the feeble position, like a little baby uh, with my legs crossed. And I tried to uncross my legs and I couldn't. So I put my hand on my knee and I, and when I put my hand on my knee and I couldn't feel it in that exact moment, I looked up in the sky and I said, Oh fuck. I'm like, dad told you so. <laughs> um, 
but at the same time, uh, a story that I love sharing is my friend Chris was there, captured the entire crash on film, ran over to me, found his way through the paramedics, reached out, grabbed my hand. He's like, he's like, Rems, I love you, man. And I literally looked at Chris and I said, Chris, you better be filming this. And Chris stepped back and he turned the camera back on. And I share that part of the story because uh, it definitely was ego that got me into that situation in the first place. But um, what I knew I wanted to be was I knew I wanted to be my own comeback story. And I knew I wanted to be like the heroes that I looked up to in my life. And in this case, it was other action sports athletes. But uh, yeah, so that I will, I, I don't, I love where we're going with the conversation yeah, yeah. about, uh, so I don't want to veer off too much right. the inspiration side, but yeah, it really was uh, ego and fear and pride that screwed me up that day of what I thought being a man was of not saying anything, just get it done, do it anyway, that put me in a situation that led to me crashing. When you were laying there and, and Chris is like, dude, I love you. I'm here for you. And you were like, are you recording? Like, get, get this on film. When the, what you were when you were speaking to yourself in that moment, did you already start the comeback journey? Were you already like, all right, this my I'm broken here, but I am going to overcome. Or was it more like yeah, maybe down the road, this could be a story and I might be up on stage down. There. Or did you really believe it that like at that point, like, all right, I'm going to do this right now. I'm going to become the hero of this story. No, it was literal. It was like, pardon my language here, but you better fucking, in my mind, yeah. like, you better fucking hit record because I'm going to be fucking pissed if you miss wow. this footage because this is not the end. Like, this is the beginning of the comeback, this moment that I just cracked. Wow. Like, in action sports, I mean, whether you go back to the 90s or to today, you want your crash on film. You're pissed if you miss your crash. That's good. That's great footage. That's what makes those two minute clips. When you get in a, a feature in a film, like you want the crash there. Cause you know, you're going to land the trick and that's what makes the rider, the rider, the person, the person. And so I literally was like, if you fucking miss capturing this footage, I'm going to be pissed. Cause I know this is a part of my journey. So I, I know that that's not necessarily going to be everybody's uh, thought process, but I can share a couple of nuggets. It's like, number one, in my mind, the metaphor for that and for life is to accept the crash before it happens. So when I got injured, like a lot of, I meet other people with injuries I don't, every time in my life. And I was in the spinal cord facility, other people that crashed. And when other people have had a, a setback in their life and they feel like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to me. Why me? Like my dad, as an example, it's like, use my dad as an example. It's like, in my mind, I never had this conversation with my dad. I wanted to, but I knew it would never have gone well. I thought to myself, I'm like, dad, did you not think that by climbing a tree, you could fall? Like, why are you so surprised that you had an accident? You told us as kids forever, don't be careful when you're climbing the tree, you might slip and fall. But then when you did it as a 51 year old, right. that you're surprised, like, give me a how, I don't know what your what's your cursing policy on. Uh, it's it out or... No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> it's like the, what's, everyone listening know. has heard the f word before. We're, we're for sure. <laughs> and I'm not, I mean, depending on the I've tried to censor a little bit here, depending on the audience. But it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, come on. And but my dad wanted to take on. Is like he's like I couldn't believe it happened. But when I rode my bike, it's like, you know, when you when you throw your leg over a motorcycle, or jump on a skateboard, or throw on skis to go down the hill, like 
if you don't realize that you can crash or get seriously injured, there's something wrong. Like you're very naive. And so in my mind, I'm like, I knew I could get hurt. And when I got hurt, I knew it was my fault. Even if the crash was an accident or whatever case. And so I share that lesson because the more you can accept responsibility in your life, the easier your life will become. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have hardship, but it can help you move through hardships significantly faster simply by how you choose to think about what's going on. Great. Two great pieces of advice right there, Kevin. I appreciate that. So now you get back home, right? And so you're in a wheelchair and you're in a home with your father in a wheelchair as well. And so you went from having this, all right, I'm going to be the hero of my own story and I could do this, but there had to have been some really, really dark moments while you were at home. Was it the whole time where you're like, all right, I'm going to shit sunshine here. Or was it like with, especially with your dad there, was there like, did you ever go through that? Holy shit. Why? What was me? What's going on here? Absolutely. There were bad days. I, I'll, I'll share with you some of like the real stuff, which by the way, if anyone is going through hell right now and wants some support, my website, kevinremple.com, you can download a free copy of my book, my autobiography. And I go into greater detail in the book than I do through most podcasts and on stage talking about the real talk, because yes, behind the scenes, uh, it was terrible. You know, like when my dad got paralyzed, I remember, you know, again, 19 years old, I remember going to sleep, you know, as a kid in our house, my parents, bedroom was across the hall from mine and my sisters and I like have vivid memories of you know uh going to bed and you know hearing my dad cry himself to sleep and shit the bed because when you can't control your bowel and bladder from a spinal cord injury you know my dad would shit himself a lot so like you know I'd hear my dad cry himself to sleep um I'd be crying in my own bed at the same time and then at 2 a.m we'd wake up to the smell of shit in the house like, or I, you know, my, the, I, my bedroom was above the rec room in the basement. And like, I, again, go to sleep and I hear my dad crying through the vent downstairs about his life change. And I'm crying upstairs. Um, you know, like, and I, and I'm, and my own self too, like I can show up here, not just can, I do show up here with enthusiasm, smile, and, and I'm good yeah. today, but you know, I had my days where I cried myself. Like I remember being in the in the rehab center bed and uh, pulled the sheets over my eyes and I'm crying underneath of my own bed sheets. My leg spasms from the nerve damage are so out of control that I, that, that they just won't stop even with the medication or um, you know, you're in so much pain that you can't sit up to get into the, into the wheelchair to go down to therapy or like times I felt like a Guinea pig because you're on so much medication it's like, try this. We'll try that. Well, if this doesn't work, maybe this will help. Well, now you got a side effect. So now you got to take this. It's like, you just feel like a punching bag for years trying to figure out what works. Like, and I, and on this topic too, I'm just, I'll keep going here for a sec, but it's like, I've been suicidal. I've been suicidal three times in my life and I got no bones about it today to say, I've called the suicide hotline and I'm glad I did because mm-hmm. In those moments where I want, I was, you know, you're in your room by yourself and you feel like you're going to, you want to end it. It's like, I remember thinking to myself, and this is for anyone who's in that dark place, because I know what it feels like. I remember saying to myself, I'm like, okay, if this is what it feels like to be so depressed that I feel like it can't get any worse. There was the fear of calling the suicide hotline or reaching out for help. But I would say to myself, 
can reaching out for help be any worse than what I'm currently experiencing? And I would say to myself, I'm like, it can't be worse. It has to be the same or better. Mm -hmm. So why not at least give it a try? And in every scenario, I'm so thankful that I did reach out for help. Like each of those three calls to the suicide hotline were like less than five minutes a piece. It was like, I just, cause the person on the other end of the phone is just a normal person. There's like, Hey, what's up? What's your name? What are you doing? What's bothering you? Okay. Tell me about it. And like in each scenario, I found that I just needed somebody to talk to but when we hold everything in, that's where that pressure comes from that you feel like you can't escape. And the, the, one of the lessons here is to give yourself permission. Like everyone's looking for permission from somebody else. Not everyone. Many times people are looking for permission, but I, I would encourage everyone to give yourself permission to take off the lid and release the pressure. Cause there are people that are happy and willing to help. <clears throat> and sometimes you just need to like vent. But that was like literally what got me through some of those darkest days. Dude, I appreciate you sharing that. That's that's some heavy stuff right there. And again, to anyone's listening, reach out. If there if you do need support, if you're at the end of your rope, reach out. Even if it's to to me on this podcast, you know how to get in touch with me and I'll do my best to direct you in the right direction. So thank you, man. I I appreciate it. Last less like negative space i'm gonna i'm gonna get to here before we start uh turning the hill and and heading back up the mountain here is you know your father did make the ultimate decision to take his own life and that was back in i believe 2007 that happened so you know more than 15 years ago right now walk us walk us through you know what happened there in as much detail as you're comfortable sharing and, and how you dealt with it absolutely uh, yeah, I'm super comfortable to chat about anything. Um, but the short story is <clears throat> dad, uh, as I described, struggled to uh, accept his injury and navigate it. And I, I don't want to discredit it. my dad put in effort. Like my dad did try very hard. Uh, he did make progress um, to find ways to adapt. However, through that, there was still an underlying tone, let's call it, of his attitude about how he would uh take out his frustrations on in our case the family primarily so there's a lot of behind the scenes that people didn't see uh and i won't get into details because i don't want to paint a negative picture about right. my dad but uh because i do believe my dad was a great dad i know that he did everything he could with the knowledge that he had but uh his attitude ended up pushing our family and some of his friends away and, and my mom ended up leaving my dad not because of his disability but because of my dad's attitude towards his disability. And then seven weeks after my mom left, my dad, unfortunately, ended up taking his own life. So it was absolutely like, you know, at that point in my life, uh, I was very numb. I was numb mm -hmm. to all of the feelings. It didn't matter if something was good or bad. I just felt a flat neutral. I just felt flat in my life. And it, it, it definitely took time. Um, I was just going through the motions for quite a while, probably a, a solid year. And it was the year, a year after my dad took his life, when I was hanging out with another friend who had a spinal cord injury and he passed me a Percocet because uh, he was taking them for his pain. And I felt amazing taking it. So I was like, wow, this is great. You know, go get a prescription. And two weeks later I'm addicted. And I didn't even know what, it, I didn't know that it was the addiction at the time. But in two weeks, I had stopped going to school. 
I um, stopped going to the gym. I stopped eating. I stopped calling friends, family, hanging out. And I was drinking. It was 2 a.m. And I thought about taking my own life. Uh, and I all, all the thought that was going through my head is like, you know, dad did it. You should too. Or, you know, you've already been through so much. Nobody will blame you. Right. It's like, just go ahead and do it, pussy. And I like, I never to this day have hurt, attempted, hurt myself or attempted anything. But like I had uh, a knife in my hand is the truth. And uh, I thought about either putting it into myself or sorry, I thought about putting it into myself, like hurting myself. But then as I have touched on earlier, the the thoughts that we speak to ourselves in those moments are what's so crucial. And what I knew is that I, that the counterintuitive thought to those, why don't you just do what your dad did was, I don't want that to be the ending to my story. And the final chapter has not been written yet. And I don't want to start something in my family that I don't want to continue. So I smashed the knife down on the counter. The blade actually broke off. It was a shit knife. And the blade, and like, ding, 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 in the kitchen sink. And I'm just like, holy shit. Like, I was so close. I'm like, oh, my God. And so I, right after that, uh, I went to my closet. I grabbed my bong because I had been smoking weed at the time. And I grabbed my bong and I grabbed a hammer and I smashed my wow. bong in the, ki- in the kitchen sink into pieces. And I dumped all my alcohol down the sink. <clears throat> and I went to bed and I called one of my friends the next day. I'm like, Hey, you know, what's going on here? Cause he my, I, you know, you have friends sometimes that are <laughs> experts in this, let's call it. And, uh, my buddy said to me, he's like, uh, when I had the cravings, I thought I need the pill for the pain. He goes, no, you're not, you don't need the pill for the pain. You're just feeling the addiction. He's like, you need to get that shit out of you. And I'm like, how am I going to do that? He goes like, you know, some people, doctors would recommend that you taper off it. And I'm, he's like, just go cold turkey. And I'm not saying that's what everybody needs to do. That's my way of dealing with it. Yeah. But I said, fuck it. I'm going cold turkey. I just dumped my pills down the toilet. And I knew I was going to suffer through withdrawals for like two or three days, which I did. And then after I got over that hump, I uh, I was able to like get myself back on track. But yeah, that was like a, a blip of what was like navigating right. life after dad took his life. And I, the the one the first time because technically three times i felt suicidal but that was the that was the first time navigating that so for the next six or so years of your life kevin you had to go on this really intensive you know mental physical emotional spiritual healing process that led you to in some way shape or form you got you were involved in in the paralympics so talk to us a little bit about that journey over the next couple of years until you got to that point where now you're competing in an international sport so I had no idea when I got injured, the Paralympics even existed until two years after my accident, someone introduced me to the sport. So when I got in, introduced to the sport, uh, for me, it was, I'd played hockey before and I actually sucked at it. <laughs> I was definitely not going anywhere in hockey, but getting back on the ice, it number one, it actually brought me a feeling like motocross because I got to put put on a helmet again yeah, and yeah. I was riding after my accident, but I wasn't able to jump my dirt bike anymore. So hockey gave me a new outlet to be physical, living with a disability. And when you have a disability, as I've now lived and experienced, and I own so many, it's like you may spend your whole life sitting down and, and you never get your heart rate up. It's hard to exercise when you're in a wheelchair. 
But when you get on the ice and play sledge hockey, it's like all of a sudden it doesn't matter if you can't use your legs. Like you can get your heart rate spiked, like just like you would if you're on a bicycle or a rower or if you're running. And so my it gave me an outlet to physically uh, test myself, to set a new goal, and to be around other people who also live with a disability. The community is fantastic. And, and uh, I played recreationally the first year, second year was provincial. Third year, I uh, made the national team, Team Canada, and I played five years to compete around the world, helping uh, earn a gold in the 2013 wow. Worlds and a bronze medal at the 2014 Paralympics in Sochi, Russia. Wow, that's unbelievable, dude. So that experience, so what is a lesson that you've learned during that experience? I mean, I'm sure there were a million lessons, um, you know, during that six-year process as you were building up to that. What's a lesson that you learned? You're like, I will never forget this, and if I have an opportunity, I'm going to share this with others. Yeah. So one lesson I'd share, especially again, for the, you know, middle schoolers, the kids that are listening here, that when you're having setbacks or something's not working out for you, what I've learned through my life experience is that life is often preparing you for something greater. You just can't see it yet. I had my dreams of how I was going to live my life through freestyle motocross. And I did for basically one day. And then two weeks later it was done. And so in many ways it felt like, well, was that a success or not? I don't know. But for me, it was, cause I did it even if it was for one day, but number two, like all of the dreams I had, as I mentioned earlier about paid for being an athlete in a magazine through sponsors, got to travel, you know, I got paid to travel, um, signing autographs for little kids. It's like all the dreams I had in motocross, I got to live tenfold through Paralympic sport. And so for that two-year window from when, when my injury happened until I discovered the sport existed, you had to keep, I had to keep putting in the effort to rebuild my life before I had a new North Star to pursue. And so for every one of us in life, we're going to go through our own up and down moments. And when you hit something that knocks you down, it may feel like, oh, it's over. Is it worth continuing? What the hell am I going to look forward to now? But I'm my words of encouragement are to continue to put in the work as if that new thing is already there, because it's going to show up at some point, you're going to meet someone or see something or travel somewhere. And all of a sudden the light bulb is going to go off. It's like, Hey, this is the new thing I can pursue. But in the meantime, you don't want to waste the time to keep moving yourself and your life forward. So I'm so thankful that I kept putting in the work to rebuild my life to maintain a positive mindset so that I was ready when the opportunity presented itself. And the key is to keep going. Even if you can't see that yet, there's something out there greater. You just have to keep going until it, until it reveals itself. I love that. And it's interesting too, Kevin. And during this journey, it's an amazing, absolutely amazing story. I think what happens, and I I went through a, a rebuilding process in my mid 40s. But during that time, like I started to change, but I didn't recognize that there was a lot of stuff that was unresolved for me. There was a lot of trauma that I was holding on to a lot of experiences I was holding on to. So it was almost like I hit a glass ceiling, so to speak, until I was able to really dig in deep and start to figure out, okay, let me really think about what are the the things that I've been holding on to that little devil that I mentioned that was on my shoulder that was constantly chirping in my ear. And so you went through the same thing you you overcame you told Chris, like this story is not over, I'm here and you now you see yourself climbing, but there was still something that was dragging you down. And that's when you you discovered this like idea of like a the Hoffman process. And it's something that you and I, when we first connected on this on the Zoom today, 
I asked you about that. You know, you have a, a whole tattoo sleeve that talks about this journey that you went through because you were still holding on to some stuff from your past that this process helped you through. So walk us through how you got to this point, going through this life-changing experience that you went through doing that Hoffman process. Yes, I was approaching 40 and feeling often empty and frustrated inside that the I had succeeded in so many different areas of my life, but not in the area of having a relationship. I, as I mentioned earlier, I spent nearly two decades um, pursuing short-term relationships, val finding validation through sex. And as I was approaching 40, I was like, why the hell is this? Why haven't I figured this out yet? Like, what the fuck is going on that this is still an issue in my life? And I was actually working with my business coach, uh, David Nagel, for his VIP day where he it's titled uh, core wound, meaning there's this thing like I just kept hearing this keep coming up working with David over the course of a year, more than a year. And I just kept triggering my mind like core wound, core wound. I'm like, what the hell is the core wound that I'm still struggling with that I don't even know I have. And I'm sitting there with David and his uh, his um, business partner, Steph Tuss, and talking about my life. And when I was sharing a story with David about when I was paralyzed at the same time as my dad, both of us are in wheelchairs and I'm sitting across the kitchen table from my dad and we're having a discussion about perspective on life and this and that, whatever. And <laughs> my dad's literally looking at me across the table. He's like, you don't understand what I'm going through. It's different. You can stand, you're going to make a recovery. You don't know what my life's like. And I'm like, again i'm like are you fucking kidding me i'm in a fucking wheelchair across the table from you he's like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter oh. and i as i'm telling the story to david nagel i'm like literally getting tears in my yeah. eyes again because it was just evoking so much of that anger and and david looks at me across the table he's like oh i know what's going on i'm like what he goes you have a negative love relationship with your father. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you were paralyzed. Sitting across the table from your dad, who is also paralyzed. You're both in wheelchairs at the exact same time. And your dad would still not acknowledge you. Like talk about an atomic bomb. Right. And he goes, uh, have you ever heard of the Hoffman process? And I'm like, no, he goes, you should look it up and you should go. And we carried on with the day, but I ended up looking up the Hoffman process. And, uh, this guy, Bob Hoffman created this, uh, coined, like did some research uncovered and coined this term negative love syndrome, which is a reflection of as children, when we're, raised we're often experiencing a lack of love in some capacity and it's often subconscious like our parents may not even know that they're doing it and we're not, we don't even know that we're experiencing it but as a result we pick up negative patterns and behaviors to get love in the process so to paint a great example and i know that for the listeners whether you're a dad well any or a mother uh or a ch uh, a child 
you're all going to relate to this because here's a, an example of one of the intake questions that really stuck with me for the rest of my life. It'll, it, they ask you, as a child, when you were growing up, and if there was an argument in the house, how did your dad behave? How did your mom behave? And then how did you behave as a result of what you saw? In my household, it was my dad's way or the highway, mm -hmm. and my mom would shut down, be quiet, and she would leave the room, mm -hmm. which taught me to avoid conflict. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> when you're trying to have a relationship, whether it's personally or professionally, avoiding conflict is not a way to grow that relationship. And that's one of the reasons why I had so many short-term relationships, because whenever there was any sort of an issue where we would have a disagreement, I would bounce, I would break up, I would quit, or I'd put a wall up and I would avoid. And we, and so I never was able to build a relationship with anybody because I was too scared to. So through the process, I uncovered all this buried stuff that I had no idea was dealing with from my childhood, healed my heart. And I can go into more details about that. But the main thing I would say, like the, of the tattoo sleeve I have on my left arm, the whole arm is done. But on the inside of my wrists are two different phrases or words that for me is what represent the big part of that big transformation. So on my inside of my right wrist, it says speak up. And on the inside of my left wrist, it says truth. And this goes back to that moment where instead of like, in the inside here is talking about your dark side. On the inside of my bicep is the dark side. The other side's what's called your uh, authentic self. And uh, your authentic self is who you truly want to be. And so when you uncover the pattern, how can you live? I want to, instead of avoiding conflict, when there's conflict, I now know that I want to speak up. And when I do speak up, I'm not going to sugarcoat what's happening. I'm going to speak my truth. So it took me 20 years to understand what the hell was going on in my life, why I kept repeating these same negative patterns and behaviors. But as a result, I can now truly say that I love myself. I've forg forgiven the past of all those other things that have happened. My heart is whole. My heart is healed. And now I can show up as my true authentic self. And I'm not scared of conflict. I can act with significantly more compassion, patience, and also empathy to understand where other people are coming from. Because now that I'm aware of it myself, it's like I can understand that there are so many other people and adults, adults who are still living with their own buried hurt from their parents, but then that's translating into how they behave around their children. Like my dad had his own patterns that he then lives, which is how I grew up, right? And so when you think about back to tying this all back to building better men and stronger men, it's like the more we can become self-aware of who we are and why we're doing what we're doing, that's gonna allow us to show up to become that better man. Like I know, like today I'm dating, I have, I have a, a fantastic partner. Her and I have only been together for a couple months, but it's a relationship that I've never had because I'm now able to show up differently because I am the man that I've, mm -hmm. I always wish I had and that I knew I needed to become before I was actually ready for the right relationship. Powerful dude. Mic drop moment there. Indeed. Um, it's funny, Kevin, as you were talking, you're mentioning conflict and arguments between your parents. You basically painted a picture of my upbringing to a T. I would add in my mom crying at the end of it and then me uh, like going away from it, but then needing to protect my sisters 
and my younger brother at the time, which I think that led me down the path of what I went into as far as like education is concerned and doing something in the like sociology and social sciences setting, because I, whenever there was conflict, I also felt I needed to shield others from seeing what was going on as well. A deep, deep dive. I, you know, I got the chills as you were telling that story. So I, I definitely appreciate, first of all, that piece, but the whole entire journey that you took us on today. I know that a lot of emotion must have been brought to the surface. You did a magnificent job, like painting a very vivid picture of everything that's gone on in your life. I know people that are were listening got a ton of value from the last hour. So before I ask the last cast question, Kevin, though, where can we find you? How do we get in touch with you? What do we get your book? You mentioned like, tell us all the stuff. Yes. If you'd like to, so number one, uh, visit my website, kevinremple.com. If you're interested, uh, I do keynote speaking for corporations. I also coach. So if you'd like to just begin there, you can download a free copy of my book I've written titled when you have every reason to give up, keep going. Uh, Website's a great place to start. Second place, just Instagram, Kevin at Kevin Rempel. My name, everything's Kevin Rempel, kevinremple.com at Kevin Rempel. On Instagram, you can find links to the book and such as well. But if you are someone who are, is struggling yourself, whether you're a, 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 a parent or a child, um, I just recently began coaching. Um, most people that I'm working with are 20 years plus. I can't, I don't currently have any teens in my program, but if you if you if this resonated with you and you feel like you're looking for some support to uh, improve your mental health or be resilient uh, to deepen your self-awareness who i love helping the most are people who are going through a career or a life transition so if you've had a, a setback in relationship you acquired a disability uh maybe your job or career has changed um or maybe you're moving to a new city or anything like that. Those are the type of people who I love helping uh, shift their mindset to, to navigate that change. So kevinremple.com and at Kevin Rempel Instagram, just DM me the word coach and uh, I'd love to have a chat. That is awesome. We'll put all that information for the listeners in our show notes. Final question is anyone listening for the last hour got a ton of value already from this episode, Kevin, if they press stop right now and they can do one thing. And by doing this one thing, they can really change their outlook on life, their perspective on life, their trajectory in life. What's that one thing someone can do right now? The one thing that I would recommend here is to just accept responsibility for what you can control. So much of my life has been driven from my dad in who I didn't want to be. And like I said, dad was still a great dad, but part of why I am the way that I am today is because I wanted to be someone positive. Um, I didn't want to, in my, what I share in my keynote, blame the tree. Like my dad blamed the tree for his accident. You can't blame a tree in life. There's going to be trees everywhere. The, your, your, your spouse is a tree. The traffic is a tree. The weather is a tree. Your teacher is a tree. There's trees everywhere. And so as soon as you accept responsibility, you take your power back. And what I just want for other people to do is to think about how you can accept your situation, accept responsibility, and then just ask yourself, what's the next right step I need to take today? Awesome, dude. Truly, truly appreciate the last hour. If you made it to the end of the episode, I'm guessing the Building Men podcast resonated with you. If so, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing this out with anyone who you believe would get value from the message. Thank you so much, brother. Really, really appreciate it. To everyone else, go one step further than you thought you could go. We'll see you next time on Building Men. 